I believe there's a plot against me because there are only a few songs that we sing that cause me to come to tears. And we just sang one of them right before I came up here. So that's not cool, Chip. Um, I'm sure some of you are wondering why in the world I am standing in the pulpit today. Well, when your preacher gets COVID, don't we have a staff of ministers and residents who are fully capable of standing here and filling in? Isn't that their job? Well, yes, but it's also my job, actually. In my role with CBF Heartland, I sometimes preach in one of our partner churches when a pastor's gone or maybe on a special occasion. It just doesn't seem to happen very often in this church. I think the last time I preached here was about seven years ago. So I am really, really happy to have an opportunity to be with you all this morning, my own church family. And let me start by saying what I say to every church I preach in, which is thank you. Thank you for being a partner with CBF Heartland and with CBF through your prayers, through your leadership, through your financial support. For those who don't know, CBF Heartland is a 12-state region that's part of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. We are a network of churches and Christians who are doing ministry and mission that really spans the entire globe. And I say we because Second Baptist has been and continues to be a vital part of that network. Leadership from this church helped to start CBF, helped to start CBF Missouri, which eventually became CBF Heartland. And this church continues to shape the future of CBF through service on boards and committees and mission teams and peer groups and on and on and on. So thank you for all that you have done in and with and for CBF. I have no doubt in my mind that Second Baptist Church and CBF will continue to strengthen each other well into the future. But I did not come here today to talk about CBF. I actually came here today to talk about hide and seek. Hide and seek, they are important ideas in Colossians, in the passage we just heard. Did you catch it? In this letter to the church in Colossae, Paul is encouraging the believers to seek after something that has been hidden. A mystery that Paul believes is the secret to life. Of course, hide-and-seek is also a game. Who in this room thinks they're really good at hide-and-seek? I expected more out of you all <laughs> down here. I thought we'd have a whole bunch of people down here say they're good at it. I used to be really good at hide-and-seek. Everybody knows that there are two parts to the game, right? There's the hiding part 
And there's the seeking part. And I have to admit that I was never a really big fan of the seeking part of hide-and-seek. Does anybody ever really like to be it? I did not like to be it. But I really did like the hiding part of hide-and-seek. And I don't want to brag, but I was pretty good at hiding. Some of that is because I was short as a little kid. I'm still a little bit short. And there are many, many disadvantages to being short. But there are some advantages to being short. And one of them is I was always good at hiding in places that the tall people and the big people just can't fit into. And I was also a really good climber. So I could climb up on top of things and hide in little nooks and crannies that other people just couldn't conceive were actually hiding places. In a game of hide-and-seek, it was not uncommon for me to be the last person found. Matter of fact, I can remember a couple of times at least where I hid myself so well and stayed quiet for so long that the seeker never found me at all. But here's the thing about hide-and-seek that's not in the name. At least the way we played hide-and-seek, there were actually three parts to hide-and-seek. There's the hiding part, the seeking part, and then the making it back to base part, the making it back home part. The objective, at least when we played it, was that third part, the making it back to base, the place where you started. There were times when I got so focused on hiding that I forgot all about the actual objective. In my competitiveness, I would focus so much on winning one part of the game that I forgot about winning the entire game. Have you ever lost sight of your objective? Have you ever forgotten about what's most important? That's what Paul is reminding us of in Colossians, about paying very close attention to what's most important in life. For Paul, things fall into two categories in that passage we read. Paul says you can seek things that are above or you can seek things that are on earth. In the verses that follow our passage, Paul gets really specific about the kinds of actions and things that fall into each of those categories. First, he talks about things on earth. And I suspect that the list that he provides, beginning in verse 5, is not really meant to be exhaustive. No doubt that the actions and attitudes that he names there had a particular relevance to the people at that time and in that place. This letter, after all, was intended for a specific group of people, to the believers in Colossae, and secondarily to their sister church in Laodicea. 
we are reading their mail, as they say. But it's interesting that Paul's list of harmful pursuits is so relevant still for our time and our context. They are the same places that we seek to find meaning and fulfillment today. Many times, we try to find life in personal pleasure, in accumulating things, in amassing wealth, in overindulgence, in telling lies about who we really are deep down. We are dealing with the same human struggles and limitations today that they were dealing with back then. Like the believers in Colossae, we have all tried some of these same pursuits. We've tried before to find life somewhere else, in something else, in someone else, somewhere, something, someone other than Jesus. And Paul's question to these believers could just as easily be asked of us. If Christ has raised us to new life, why in the world do we keep going to these same old places looking for something better? Well, since Paul has divided these things into two categories, it's not surprising that he offers these believers a list of things from the second category. A list of things that they ought to be seeking instead. A list of heavenly things instead of earthly things. What is surprising to me, at least, is what's on the list. Because Paul does not give a list that is particularly religious. It's not a list of church words or church actions. Nowhere on the list will you find faith. Doctrine, purity, holiness, or even spirituality. Instead, Paul says in verses 12 and 13 that Christians should seek to fill their lives with compassion, kindness, humility, patience. Forgiveness, and above all other things, love. What strikes me about Paul's list of heavenly things is just how down to earth it is. All of these actions, all of these virtues are about relationships. Relationships. Seeking things that are above, pursuing heavenly things doesn't remove us from the world. It doesn't put us in the clouds, floating up there with the angels, untouched and unbothered by the concerns of humanity. No, no, just the opposite. Seeking this new way of living fixes our eyes even more clearly, even more firmly on people and the ways that we connect fixes our eyes on the relationships we have with family and friends, co-workers, 
strangers, our community. When we seek things that are above, we begin to think less about our personal concerns and more about the concerns of others. Our focus begins to shift from my life to our life. What Paul is suggesting is a bit of a paradox that seeking heavenly things actually helps us live more engaged lives here on earth. When we seek things that are above, Paul says that a profound and beautiful mystery is being solved. A secret that was hidden is now being revealed. And like in many good mysteries, the secret has been staring us in the face. Talking about the mystery of hidden things always makes me think of the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Purloined Letter. Raise your hand if you were also thinking about The Purloined Letter. <laughs> no one. It's, it's always the same. No one. The Purloined Letter is part of a trilogy of mystery stories that Poe wrote that includes the murders in the Rue Morgue, which is actually considered the very first detective story ever written. All three of the stories in the trilogy feature a detective named C. Auguste Dupin, who is sort of like a precursor to Sherlock Holmes. He just came about 50 years before Sherlock came around. In the purloined letter, Dupin is approached with a problem. A letter containing some embarrassing information has been taken from its owner, and she is being blackmailed. The owner knows who the thief is and has engaged the police to try to uncover where the thief is hiding the letter. And so the police go to the thief's lodgings to try to find the letter. They, they search all over the place where the person lives. They look in every nook and cranny they can think of of where a letter might be hiding. They go to the books in the library and they thumb through all the books. They even pry open the bindings of the books to see if the letter is wedged in there somehow. They look under the, the carpets on the floor. They even look under the floorboards. They pry up the floorboards and look there. Still no letter. And then they take apart the furniture to see if in the hollows of the, the chair and table legs, maybe the letter's down in, in one of those holes. Nope, still no letter. So they decide maybe the thief has got the letter inside his pocket. So the, the police dress up like thieves themselves and they mug the thief and they search all the pockets for that uh, letter and they still do not find it. It's a problem that's both simple and baffling. Perhaps the letter or the mystery is too plain, says the detective Dupin, a little too self-evident. And of course, the great detective is able to find the letter, but not by finding it in some obscure place, he finds the letter 
in an obvious place. He discovers that the thief has concealed the letter by not concealing it. The letter was actually in a letter holder, out in the open, for just anyone to see, except it was turned inside out and resealed. I wonder if the mystery of our life in Christ is just as simple. Like the purloined letter, perhaps our life, our real life, has been hiding in plain sight. Maybe our life has been turned inside out and is simply waiting for our rediscovery. I wonder if the secret to living an abundant and eternal life is really about opening our eyes to what has been there all along. It reminds me of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem that's printed for you on the front of your worship guide. She wrote, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. When you read that poem, don't you wonder, why can't everyone see it? Why can't they see the bush burning with God's presence, just like the one Moses encountered in Exodus? Why can't they see what ought to be so obvious? Well, if those people who only see blackberries are like us, I imagine their minds are on other things. Perhaps they're distracted by commitments and responsibilities, by the busyness and worry of life, by the daily news or the answer to today's wordle. Perhaps, like us, the stuff of everyday life is clouding their vision to what is right in front of them. And they don't realize that their common everyday experience is actually an opportunity to encounter God. And that's what Colossians is trying to tell us too. That the secret to a miraculous life has been right in your grasp this whole time. But will we take the opportunity to grasp it? Will we have the courage to seek it? There's an episode in John chapter 6 where Jesus told his followers that those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me and I in them. And after hearing this, most of the people around Jesus left him. They freaked out and they started to go other places. And then Jesus turned to his most trusted followers, his 12 disciples, and said, do you want to leave too? And Peter said, Jesus, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. 
Peter understood that his life, his real life, his most meaningful life, his abundant and eternal life would never be found apart from Jesus. His life couldn't be separated from Christ's life. And that's the way it is for us too. Our truest and most abundant life is with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ in the heart of a God who knows us and loves us like a parent loves their children. It is a love that surrounds us in every moment and circumstance, a love that is like the atmosphere we walk around in, like the air we breathe. In God we live and move and have our being is how Paul preached it to a group in Athens. We live in a God-bathed world or a God-infused world is how theologian Dallas Willard said it. Christ is all things and is in all things, it says later in Colossians. Earth is crammed with heaven, is how Browning said it. God is so abundantly present in our world and in our lives. And many times, it's a miracle we just don't see. And maybe Kurt Vonnegut was right. I, I gave you a quote from Kurt Vonnegut on the front of your worship guide, that even when we do see a miracle, sometimes we see the wrong end of it. Sometimes we just don't understand it. Was Peter looking at the wrong end of the miracle? Are we looking at the wrong end of the miracle even today? Maybe the biggest miracle isn't that earth is crammed with heaven, but that we are. Maybe the most important miracle isn't that our lives are in Christ, but that Christ's life is in us. That changes things, doesn't it? Paul invites us to seek out a life that is hidden with Christ in God. And while being with Christ in God is a loving place, it isn't necessarily a comfortable place. Being hidden with Christ doesn't mean a life in hiding. As Christians, we can't hide away from the problems and challenges of this world as if we're in a game of hide-and-seek. No, when we are in Christ and Christ is in us, then you and I are part of the miracle that God is trying to share with the world. We aren't just invited to see the presence of Christ in the world. We are invited to be the presence of Christ in the world. When our lives are hidden with Christ, our eyes begin to see people as God's beloved children, as brothers and sisters rather than strangers and enemies. And we begin to invest time 
and energy and resources in people we may have overlooked or avoided before. When our lives are hidden in Christ, our hands begin to work for peace and justice, not just for ourselves or our own family, but for everyone. We start to share and give away rather than save and hoard, and we have the courage to touch the sick and wounded, to seek healing rather than blame. When our lives are hidden in Christ, our ears begin to hear the voices of loneliness, of heartbreak, and of, of misunderstanding. We start to listen to the stories of the bruised and the broken, the shunned and the hated, the beat down and the shut out. We begin to recognize the call of Jesus in their cries. When our lives are hidden in Christ, our hearts begin to soften where they may have been calloused before, and we begin to offer forgiveness rather than retaliation. We start to show humility rather than defensiveness. We begin to share ourselves rather than protect ourselves. We choose love and action rather than disinterest and apathy. When our lives are hidden in Christ, our minds begin to grasp the urgency of this day. We start to understand the value of each moment, the opportunity to make all things new. We begin to see that the life of Christ is right here, hiding in plain sight right in our hands if we will only grasp it, right here if we will only share it. So now, the mystery is solved. The secret is out. Your life, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life is in Christ, and Christ's life is in us. We are folded up together with Christ, and like a love letter, we have been folded inside out and sealed by the Spirit of God and sent out into the world, sent to be the presence of Christ so now, what will we do? What will we do? What will we do now that we too have the words of eternal life? Amen. <clears throat>